We're going to be in the book of Galatians. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn there. We are providing these scripture journals that look like this, little black books that say the letter of Paul to the Galatians on the front. They're out in the hallway of the worship center. It's the text of Galatians on the left page and just lined paper on the right so that you can take notes and follow along. If you keep this with you throughout our series over the next three months or so, uh, I trust that you'll end up with a repository of of uh, things that could be helpful to you in understanding and applying uh, this book of God's Word. We're suggesting a $3 donation for each of those books, but don't let that stop you. We'd love for everybody that intends to make use of this to have one. So, And don't be embarrassed if you don't have one and you want one. You can get up right now and go get it. That's okay. Um, but I want to make that available to you. How would you respond if someone that you loved were in imminent danger? If a mother were, were to notice her young child wandering close to the edge of a high cliff, apparently unaware of the danger, how might you expect her to react? Calmly? With reservation? If a close friend were crossing the street and you saw a car careening toward the intersection at a high speed, apparently unnoticed by your friend, what action might you take? How might you use your, your voice, your body, all your energy in an effort to rescue your friend from calamity? It is obviously right and appropriate to us to abandon restraint and to cast off social norms of dignity and propriety when someone is in danger and we need to help them. And if it's so obvious to us to do that when a loved one is in physical danger, how much more important, how much more must this be true of our efforts to warn against spiritual catastrophe with eternal consequences? When someone is in spiritual danger, in danger of forfeiting their very soul, how much more does it call us to passionately, urgently call to them? That is the tone and effect of Paul's letter to the Galatians. In my email introduction to this preaching series, I noted that Paul is ready to condemn an angel oppose an apostle, and wish violence on church leaders. Paul is riled up in the book of Galatians. He seems very energized. He is very passionate. He is very urgently calling to his readers. It's more so than any other letter of Paul's that we read. He is passionate. He is riled up. Why? Why is Paul so urgently, desperately pleading, calling to these readers. The Galatians were in danger of making shipwreck of their faith, of forfeiting their standing with God and placing themselves in eternal peril. In a nutshell, they were on the brink of abandoning the grace of God in Christ for a different gospel. 
And Paul uses all the resources of strength and passion that he can find to call to these young Christians to come back from the brink. But what if I told you that the danger the Galatians were facing, about which Paul is so urgently, desperately warning them, is a danger just as real for us today? That you and I face the same tendency to drift away from our confident standing in Christ and instead to live by a lesser rule. Friends, I believe that the message of the book of Galatians is a needed exhortation for the church of Jesus Christ in every age. And it's my prayer that the Spirit of God will use our study of this book over the next three months or so to guide our feet away from the slippery crumbling cliff's edge of false gospels and to plant them once again on the solid ground of God's free grace in Christ. Would you pray with me to that end right now? Father, open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things from your word for Christ's sake. Amen. At the heart of this letter, like what's Galatians all about? At the heart of this letter is the insistence that grace is the source of all spiritual blessing and hope in the gospel. Grace, the unmerited favor and kindness of God toward people who don't deserve it. The free, unfettered blessing of God poured out on sinners who by their unrighteousness had earned his just wrath and condemnation. Yet instead of judgment and wrath, we receive, as the old hymn says, pardon for sin and a peace that endures, his own dear presence to cheer and to guide, strength for today, bright hope for tomorrow. Why? Because of grace. That's the heart of the gospel, and that's the heart of this letter. In our text today, the first nine verses of Galatians 1, we will learn about the gospel's messengers, the gospel's content, and the gospel's boundaries. Those are our three sort of organizing themes, if you will, as we walk through the passage. Let me read for you the first nine verses of Galatians chapter 1. If you're willing and able, I'd invite you to stand as we read out of reverence for God and in honor of his word. Galatians chapter 1. Verses 1 through 9. Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him, raised Jesus from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me. So he includes these fellow laborers in the gospel as partners with him in his message. In other words, this isn't only me speaking. What I'm about to say is co-signed by this team of ministers and evangelists and leaders who are with me. So this is a group message in a way. And secondly, as we see later in this passage, he places himself in subjection to the churches. When he says, if we, that is, if I and my ministry team, if we came to you and preached a different gospel, what do you say? Let him be accursed. He's calling the churches to condemn him if he preaches a different gospel. And so he places himself under subjection, under the authority of the church in terms of the purity and integrity of the gospel that he preaches. In other words, 
I am only authoritatively speaking from God insofar as what I say accords with the true gospel message that God gave me. If I veer from this message, you are to judge me as accursed, condemned. That's what he says to the churches. So he's not arrogantly, falsely, inappropriately elevating himself. He is pointing to the authority of the message of the gospel that came from God himself. I think there's an important word for us here concerning how we regard preachers and the preaching of God's word. And I say this as one authorized by the church to speak, in a way, on God's behalf. We rightly esteem the preaching of God's word. We rightly follow the custom of our tradition in affording a significant portion of our weekly gathering to the exposition and application of God's word. We rightly recognize the one preaching the word as an authorized messenger, a spokesperson for God. But that authority, that esteem, that deference only extends up to the point where the preacher veers beyond the clear counsel of God's word. The opinions of the preacher are not divinely inspired. Perhaps it's appropriate for me to say that to you in my first outing behind your pulpit. I may share some opinions from time to time. My opinions are not inspired by the Holy Spirit, and I might be wrong. But to the extent that what I say comes from the Word of God and is clearly founded upon its teachings and accords with the true gospel, we rightly regard the preaching of God's Word as authoritative in the life of the church. So Paul, an apostle, and now he's going to name his recipients to the churches of Galatia. The word church translates the Greek ekklesia, meaning assembly. These are local assemblies of God's people who gather for worship and instruction. That's what we're doing now. Christians have been doing that from the very beginning. And so he's writing not to one church. He's writing to a group of churches, probably in the region of Galatia in Asia Minor, in several towns. So these are local churches in the region of Galatia. He and Barnabas had probably planted these churches during their first missionary journey, which you can read about in Acts chapter 13 and 14. And he writes back to them to provide further instruction and correction, as would become his pattern. Most of the letters that we have from Paul in the New Testament are letters to churches that he planted or had some relationship to, and now he's moved along and he's heard from them how things are going, and he's writing into their situations. Here is what the Lord says about those things. And so these are young churches of mostly Gentile converts. You have to understand this is, most, this is not a Jewish context where these churches are. Mostly Gentile believers who, since Paul's departure, have begun to be influenced by false teachers. Teachers who are attempting to add to the gospel by insisting on adherence to Jewish laws and customs. And so those things will come up. He'll speak a good bit about circumcision. He'll speak about Jewish dietary laws. He'll speak about the observance of uh, festivals and feasts. As though these teachers are imposing upon Gentile converts a Jewish way of life, a Jewish religious code. And Paul is going to, in effect, 
grab the Galatians by the collar and shake them out of their legalistic stupor. Your salvation is by grace through faith, not by works of the law. And so Paul writes this letter to deliver a stern warning to these young Christians concerning their apparent susceptibility to false teaching and to provide unmistakable clarity concerning the true gospel of God's free grace in Christ. It's fitting then that Paul begins this letter before launching into his sort of collar-shaking diatribe with a brief but poignant exposition of the grace of God in the gospel. Let's look again at verses 3 through 5, and we'll see the gospel's content. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Here is a succinct but powerful explanation of what the gospel is. The first word, grace. Grace. This is the whole foundation. Salvation is the blessed result of God's free, undeserved kindness flowing to sinners by His own good pleasure. He doesn't owe sinners anything. He doesn't owe forgiveness. He doesn't owe His presence and care. He doesn't owe them provision of any kind. We've sinned, we've rebelled, we've rejected him, we've wandered. But grace draws near to the sinner. Grace pours out love and blessing and goodness upon those who do not deserve it. Grace and peace. The grace that he pours out on sinners results in their peace with God. Peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The second point of this gospel presentation is substitution. Substitution, that's a big word, but it's reflected there in that phrase that Jesus Christ gave himself for our sins. For our sins means in our place because of our sins. Jesus didn't have any sins. He didn't give himself up for his own sins. He didn't die because of his own sins. He didn't have any. He died because of ours. Paul's saying, Galatian Christians, he died because of your sin. He gave himself up in your place to take your penalty, to take your shame. The gospel in four words is this, Jesus in my place. Substitution is so important to the content of the gospel. We must recognize Christ standing in our place. So grace is the foundation the fuel substitution is the core content it's jesus in our place and what is the result of him giving himself up for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age rescue god's grace is the foundation christ's substitution is the content of it and the result of that is that he rescues people now, friends, who needs to be rescued? Who needs to be delivered? The one who is helplessly entrapped, unable to help himself, unable to shake himself free of the bonds that hold him. 
That's you. That's me. Unable to help themselves. Who's the deliverer? Christ. Christ gave himself in our place for our sins so that he might rescue us. He might deliver us. And it says he delivers us from the evil age, the present evil age. The evil age that he speaks of here is the whole world order that's passing away, corrupted by sin since the fall of mankind in the Garden of Eden, under the influence of the devil and his dark minions, and destined for destruction at the return of our conquering king. It's the evil age to which this world belongs. And so we've been delivered from the present evil age and implicitly into something else, into a different age, a new age. What Paul, at the end of this letter in Galatians 6.15, calls the, age, or the new creation. The new creation. So we've been delivered from the present evil age into a new creation, into a new age. He summarizes this well in Colossians 1.13 where he says that he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We were a part of this evil, passing away, destined for destruction age. But through Christ's substitutionary death in our place, he has pulled us out of that and placed us into a new and eternal age that's characterized not by sin and corruption and destruction, but by righteousness and justice and peace and love. That's the new age to which we belong. If you ever wonder why you feel so much tension living as a Christian in this world, it's because we're torn between two ages. We live in a world that is tied to the present evil age that's passing away. And because of Christ's deliverance, we're also a part of the new age that's begun but not yet fully consummated and fully realized and that will last forever. We live between these two ages. We're pulled by sin. We're drawn toward righteousness. This is some of the agony of the Christian life. But he's delivered us from this evil age and through or into a new and eternal age. God, by his grace, through the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ in our place, has rescued us from this dying age and delivered us into a new and eternal age. And the result of all that, the upshot of all of that, glory to God, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. That Reformation motto, soli deo gloria, glory to God alone God receives all the glory for our salvation because it's all his work from start to finish he saved us he keeps us and he will deliver us safely into glory praise God from whom all blessings flow brothers and sisters let's not complicate the gospel this is the beautiful, simple gospel. God, in sheer grace, saves from death and judgment those who place their trust in the atoning death and resurrection of Jesus Christ in their place. That's the gospel. I remember hearing a, a Jonathan Dodson, who's a teacher and author, sharing the story of 
how he was sharing the gospel with somebody, a guy who was broken by addiction and all kinds of hardships in his life, and he was just beaten down. And he said, it looks to me like you, you want a new life. If you want a new life, you need to repent of your sins and turn to Jesus in faith, and he'll rescue you, and he'll give you new and eternal life. And he said, the guy looked at him and went, is it that simple? And Jonathan said he had to kind of think for a minute, wait, is it? Yeah, yeah, it really is. It really is that simple. If you want a new life, if you want an eternal hope, repent of your sins, trust in Christ, he rescues you. It's that simple. Now, there are endless depths of God's grace in Christ to explore. We're going to have an eternity to do that together. But the saving message of God's grace in Christ is simple and clear. And we do well to not overcomplicate it. That's what's going on at some level in the Galatian churches. There's been some additives along with Christ and his grace being added to the gospel. Friend, believe in Christ. Repent of your sin and turn to him in simple faith and he will rescue you. If you've never done that, this is your day. Trust upon Christ and he will save you. So that's the gospel's messengers and the gospel's content, and now he launches immediately into this passionate call concerning the gospel's boundaries. The gospel's boundaries. Now most of the time in Paul's letters, he introduces himself, he confers, he identifies his recipients, confers some kind of little grace wish or something, you know, grace to you in peace, that sort of thing. And then he usually has some kind of a prayer of thanksgiving. We have heard of your good faith. We have heard of the, the works of kindness that you've been performing, and we're praising God for his work in you. He skips that here. He goes straight from, I am Paul, an apostle from Christ. You are churches in Galatia. Here's a little bit of the content of the gospel. I am astonished at you. He launches right into this bold, passionate call. Paul's surprise and disappointment with the Galatians' susceptibility to false teaching, I think, is sincere. He is surprised because what he saw when he was with them was a sincere, earnest, childlike faith. When we preached the gospel to you, you received it with all joy. And now, look at you. You're, you're veering away. Now, their apostasy, that is, their turning away from the faith, is in progress, but not yet complete. He says, you are deserting, right, that ongoing, that tense of that verb, that you are so quickly deserting him. So the ferocity of his admonition in this letter is akin to the warning cries of a father after his young son who is walking toward the precipice of a high cliff. Don't! Stop! Come back! You'll be destroyed! He says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. There's a lot packed into that one little phrase. I want you to notice that there are several phrases in this verse that are all very closely related to one another. The first one is that I want to point out is turning to a different gospel. He says they're deserting him who called you and turning to a different gospel. And he says, not that there is another one. I think the NIV translates that, which is no gospel at all. There isn't another gospel. 
It's not like you get to choose which gospel do you want. You want God's gospel or man's gospel, and they're both equal. There's only one gospel. So it's like you're turning away to a different gospel, which isn't a gospel. It's not good news. And then he says, there's not another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So turning away to a different gospel is the same kind of thing as distorting the gospel of Christ. That is twisting it, changing it, adding to it, subtracting from it. So distorting the gospel is tantamount to turning away from the gospel to a different non-gospel, and all of that is the same thing as deserting him who called you. You are deserting him. Do you realize if you embrace this teaching, if you try to put your life in accord with what these false teachers are saying, yes, believe in Jesus and do this other stuff, live these Jewish religious cultural ways, you're leaving God. You're abandoning him altogether. You're deserting him who called you. And there again, the heart of the true gospel is grace. He says you're turning from him who called you in the grace of Christ. That calling is the the inward, effectual call of the Spirit of God that draws sinners to repentance and to faith in Christ. By his grace, it's his work, it's his gift. You're turning away from that. You're deserting God. If the heart of the true gospel is grace poured out through Christ, the heart of this legalistic non-gospel asks, what can I add to the grace of Christ in order to be saved? What can I add in order to secure my standing before God. This is subtle. You probably aren't going to have people in our church or in our day challenging you to live like a Jew. But there may be other things that we kind of start to to substitute or add in. Maybe it's Jesus plus church attendance. Jesus plus Bible study. Jesus plus homeschooling your kids. Jesus plus diet and exercise. There are all kinds of things that we can tend to add on to faith in Christ to attempt to secure our standing before him. Friends, no. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That's gospel math. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. No additives, no just add water with the gospel. Christ only, grace alone. So what is the different gospel that the Galatians are being taught? Well, I've already alluded to it, but it's essentially that salvation in Christ requires adherence to Jewish cultural and religious practices. They've essentially added to the gospel Paul's gospel, that is God's gospel, is this. Christ has completed the work of atoning for your sins, and you are saved by his free grace, which comes to you solely through faith, through trusting upon him. The false teachers in Galatia are saying, in effect, yeah, you do have to have faith in Jesus, but you also have to conform to certain religious and cultural patterns 
in order to be acceptable to him. Another expression of this distorted gospel, this non-gospel that we'll spend more time on in future weeks, is the binding of the conscience where God has not authoritatively spoken. Anytime we place a rule upon Christians that God himself has not given in his word, we are in effect adding to the gospel. When we elevate a religious or cultural practice to the place of divine command, that is, this is required by all people, you are adding to the gospel. It's subtle, but it's dangerous. If you're not yet sure how Paul regards such teaching, consider his categorical denunciations in verses 8 and 9. He says twice, let him be accursed. If we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel when we preach to you, let him be accursed. The Greek is anathema. It means condemned. The Greek translation of the Old Testament uses the same word when it speaks of uh, the, the peoples and uh, possessions of the wicked tribes that God would judge uh, when it said that they were devoted to God. That is devoted for destruction. Let him be accursed. Let him be eternally condemned. Let him be destroyed. If I come to you, Paul says, or an angel from heaven shows up in your church service and says, hey, I'm so glad you're trusting in Jesus. Now, if you'll just live in this certain way in addition to that, then you'll really be secure with God. He says, condemn that angel. Let him be accursed. And I want you to notice that he puts this responsibility on the congregations. He doesn't say summon the, 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 the leaders. He doesn't say summon the bishops in the region and let them make a decision. He says, no, if an angel preaches to you a different gospel, if I preach to you a different gospel, if anyone preaches to you a different gospel, curse him. Pronounce judgment upon him. Regard him as anathema. So here's what I want you to hear from this. You are responsible to recognize counterfeit gospels. The people of Crosspoint Fellowship, members of Crosspoint Fellowship, you are responsible to hold your pastors and teachers accountable to telling you the truth. If an angel from heaven appeared here today, that'd be crazy, right? Whoa, I've never been in a worship service where that happened. But if an angel floated down, bright and strong, and all the eyes all over him, and the wings, and the booming voice. And he said, you must register as a Republican in order to be saved. You got to condemn that angel. You got to say, that's not the gospel, angel. Have you heard about God's free grace in Christ? That's the gospel. If all your pastors... And if all your favorite Bible teachers all over the world that you listen to on the internet or the podcast you subscribe to, if all of them start teaching a false gospel, start distorting the simple gospel of God's free grace in Christ, you stand firm. You hold the line. That's what God's word calls you to. I don't think that means you should be suspicious of your pastors. You should assume your pastors are just one step away from falling off into heresy and leading you astray. But it means you should listen with discernment. It means you need to train your mind and heart to recognize falsehood when you hear it. 
How do we do that? A few ideas. First, prioritize the church's weekly gathering where the gospel is read and prayed and preached and sung and visibly displayed in the ordinances. You should prioritize the gathering of the church over sports, over family gatherings, over getting some rest because it's been a long week, over your favorite hobbies that take you out to the lake on a Sunday morning. Prioritize the weekly gathering of God's people. This is where the gospel will be. You'll be reminded of it over and over. We're going to have it in our mouths together, saying and singing the same things. We're going to be receiving the body and blood of the Lord in the act of communion. We take those things together and it reminds us of what's true. It trains us to recognize distortions when they come. Another idea is to disciple one another in the gospel. Intentionally pursue relationships with other people in this church for the purpose of reading, studying, reflecting on God's word. Encouraging one another in the faith. Get together with one another for coffee and yes, ask, how are you doing? How's your wife? How are your kids? What are your challenges? But talk about the gospel. Talk about God's word. Read a book of the Bible together and discuss it. You don't have to be a pastor to do that. Get together. Disciple one another in the gospel. Give gospel encouragement to each other. Encouragement beyond, you did good today. You look nice. Hang in there. Encouragement that's rooted in God's overflowing grace in Christ. encouragement that's rooted in God's promises and how they strengthen you to run the race. I know a lady who's written a really good book on just this thing. You should find her. Lovingly point out possible gospel distortions that you notice in one another. I'm not talking about going on a war path. I'm not talking about condemning somebody. Do you realize your gospel is bad? But when you see somebody perhaps giving evidence of trusting in the wrong thing, Wow, you're really hesitant to confess your sin. Is it possibly because you think you need to earn your standing before God? Brother, let me remind you. God has forgiven you in Christ. You are free to confess your sin because he doesn't judge you based on it. Neither do I. Just remind each other. Gently, lovingly point each other to the true gospel when you see distortions of it, even subtly. A final idea. Pray for one another to grow deeper in awareness of and love for the gospel. Do you pray for your fellow members? Do you pray for your brothers and sisters in the faith? Lord, let my brother remain true to the gospel today. Let my sister find strength and hope from the free grace that you've poured out on her in Jesus Christ today. Pray for one another to grow in awareness of and love for the gospel. Where might this be a danger for you? What might you be tempted to add to the gospel? To what sorts of things are you inclined to attach your sense of security and belonging beyond the finished work of Christ at Calvary? What works of righteousness or what sense of your own moral goodness do you need to just lay at the feet of Jesus this morning? Say, I cast that down. That is not the basis of my righteousness. That is not the source of my standing with you. God, let me trust in Christ alone.
What do you need to lay at his feet today? If you've never placed your faith in the completed work of Christ on the cross, if you're trusting now in your own goodness or your own efforts to keep some sense of right and wrong or God's law in order to be right with him, we invite you this very day to drop that act and to turn to Jesus in simple faith. One of my favorite old hymns says, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to thy fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Friends, there is no other gospel. Let's pray. Oh God, cause us by your Spirit in us to stand firm upon the truth that Christ died for us to deliver us from the present evil age. Grant us the courage to stay true to your word even when everyone around us abandons it. Give us grace to recognize false gospels when we hear them and to run, run, run back to the cross of Christ where alone we receive mercy, where we receive grace, where your life is poured out upon us by your Spirit. May we find our greatest joy, our greatest comfort, our greatest confidence, and our greatest hope in the simple, settled reality that we belong to you eternally because Jesus suffered in our place and rose again from the dead. May we encourage one another in those truths. And may we steward that gospel faithfully and winsomely and courageously to the world around us. In Christ's name. Amen.